Well, hello, beautiful. Hello there. Hello. My name's Forrest. Forrest Gump. Hello, John. Hello, John. Hello, John. <laughs> hello. Hello, John. Welcome to the party, pal. Hello! My name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. Oh, hi, Mark. Hello, Neo. Do you know who this is? Hello, Poppy. Hello, everybody, and welcome again to Be Kind, Please Rewind, a 90s movie podcast. We're here today talking about September of 1990. I'm Chris. I'm Kevin. And we're back. We're back back in the car again. Back in the car again. At least we're out of the tree. So we started off at the beginning of Corona, uh, doing these over Skype, getting in some practice runs, and then... It loosened up a little bit, and we got you here live, and now you are being chased on an almost weekly basis by the by the Rona. The Rona's so now, following me everywhere. So now we're back on Skype, so hence yep. we're back in the car again. And uh, we're sorry if there's a down in the audio, but we're going to do the best we can here. I'm really upset by that because like last month we just got a hold of the audio and now here we are with you on Skype and I have a feeling it's going to be of subpar quality. Well, nonetheless, we had a pretty good month here, so at least we have some good content to discuss. Yeah, well, I am so excited to get to Goodfellas, so I wish we could just skip this whole thing introduction and just do that for an hour but well, if you're listening just skip to the last like 20 25 minutes all right right <laughs> they excited can, <laughs> they can skip but i can't skip no you that, can't skip but we'll still point. get there before them all right well let's get right to it so we could get there as fast as possible what do you say all right so we got 14 movies that came out this month coming in at number 14 the tall guy earning five hundred and ten thousand dollars Nice. Uh, yeah. So this is a nasty comedian's assistant has allergies that upset the performance. He begins a treatment of shots when he sees a cute nurse. After 12 injections, he asks her out. <laughs> 12. <laughs> <laughs> this, this was the exact, exact plot line that I found online. So <laughs> and I think I feel like you should have paraphrased. No, I loved it. I loved every every <laughs> word in that. <laughs> in that description. <laughs> All right. So this is directed by Mel Smith. He did nothing else. <laughs> <laughs> this movie's Hold on though. Are you ready for the top 3 bills in this movie? Okay. Jeff Goldblum. Wow. All right. Emma Thompson Ooh, and Rowan poor? Atkinson. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So now Emma Thompson, this is her theatrical debut. Um, okay. She was, she was not four, so uh she actually plays the nurse. What do you got? Number 13, An Angel at My Table. This is uh, an autobi- autobiography excuse me, about Janet Frame, who was uh, misdiagnosed with schizophrenia. So I just wanted to take like 30 seconds to explain what this movie's about. Uh, she wrote some critically acclaimed books. Uh, I cited from a website called Britannica, which I guess is Encyclopedia, Encyclopedia. Britannica. 
Britannica, but now it's a website. So uh, in 1945, while studying to be a teacher, she suffered a breakdown. Then she was misdiagnosed having schizophrenia, and she spent nearly a decade in psychiatric hospitals. Uh, so, so from 1947, following the drowning death of another sister, that's it said another sister, so I'm hoping not both of her sisters died from drowning. But anyhow... Uh, it says she endured repeated courses of electroconvulsive therapy. Oof. In 1951, while still a patient, she published her first book, The Lagoon, uh, and then a collection of sh- short stories. Uh, it expresses the sense of isolation and insecurity of those who feel they do not fit into a normal world. Uh, she was scheduled to have, this is crazy, scheduled to have a lobotomy until hospital officials learned that she had won a literary, a literary award for uh, the book, Lagoon. Um, then the procedure was canceled, thank God. Oh, uh, Frame, the book, was released in 1955. So I thought that was like a real roller coaster for That's this woman. That's a wild story. I think so, just based on... I, I would like to actually know more about this person. So so what, did, did it say what she actually wound up... Like having like what was wrong with her? It says she had a breakdown. I mean, I don't know what that consisted of, but I know so, it said. I it said, and I said, and also I read that one of her sisters died from drowning. Um, so I suppose yeah. that had something to do with it. By the but way, it, this movie. How much did this movie earn? You uh, it said a million dollars. I don't have any more accuracy than that. Okay. Well, I mean, it's definitely an interesting story. I mean, something I'd like to read about. Maybe not watch a movie about it. Or I could get all of the information that I need in about an hour and 30 minutes, which is why I love movies. <laughs> yes, that is that is the brilliance that is a movie, right? All right, moving on. All right, coming in at number 12, State of Grace. So a New York City cop is recruited to return with, to his hometown and infiltrate the mob ran by his best friend's brother. Um, so sounds interesting enough but we also have another mobster movie that came out this month that maybe overshadowed this one a bit oh yeah maybe <laughs> so directed by phil and i'm gonna butcher this joanno i guess uh he's a mu- music video documentary uh type director he directed yeah. some youtube videos bon jovi mariah carey things like that okay. however listen to this cast now too sean penn mm-hmm. ed harris mm-hmm. gary oldman mm-hmm. robin wright John Totoro, John C. Riley, and wow. Burgess Meredith. I'm this movie on my paper right now because I'm obviously watching that. I I started reading through this cast and I was like, how did this movie only earn 1.9 million dollars? Well, we know why because well, Goodfellas <laughs> didn't even do that great in the box well, office, but right, uh, it's, anyway, it's it's 1990. Uh, so yes, so interestingly enough, we don't like to be vulgar on this podcast, but I will say. Uh, the word fuck and its variations were used 210 times in this film, wow. averaging 1.6 usages every minute. Wow, that's sick. It didn't Goodfellas have some? They didn't say that a lot, right? It wasn't. No, I, I, they used a lot of vulgarity. It wasn't consistently that the word. F word. Yeah. <laughs> this word was just, this movie was just all about that word. All and, right. And be prepared. It does come up again. Okay. Podcast. <laughs> okay. Uh, Texasville, number 11, grossed approximately $2 million. Uh, Jeff Bridges, Sybil Shepard, Cloris Leachman, Randy Quaid, decent cast. 
Uh, it's a sequel to a movie called The Last Picture Show, which was uh, in 1971, which also had Jeff Bridges and Sybil Shepard as the leads. It follows up with the Kathleen and JC played by what I said, uh, 30 years older, but still chasing after each other despite other relationships. Eh, might yeah, watch it. Yeah. Not sold. <laughs> no, Jeff Bridges, Sybil, Sybil Shepard, Cloris Leachman, Randy Quaid. That's like the, the B cast. That's like the coming off the bench cast. That I feel. Yeah, I'm, I'm not feeling that movie. I don't even have anything to say about it. So we move on. <laughs> <laughs> well, you could have not said anything and then you therefore would have had nothing to say about it. Yeah, but I wanted people to know I had nothing to say about it. And now here we are. All right. Number 10. <laughs> King of New York earning $2.4 million. A drug kingpin is released from prison and seeks to take a total control of the criminal underworld in order to give back to the community. Okay. Yeah. Go ahead. You, you tell me. You've never seen this movie, right? No. I've seen this movie more than a handful of times. You go ahead and give the plot, and then I'll, I'll expound. I just gave the plot. Oh, but that was it? <laughs> that was well, it. Give, give the cast, then, and I'll expound. All right, so it's directed by Abel Ferrara, who uh, directed the original Bad Lieutenant, mm -hmm. starring Christopher Walken, yep. David Caruso. Mm -hmm. He was Horatio and uh, Horatio Kane in CSI Miami, in case you were wondering. Uh, Lawrence Fishburne, a young Wesley Snipes. In fact, this might have been Wesley Snipes' first movie. Uh, Giancarlo Esposito, he's from Baking Bad. He played Gus. And in this movie, the word fuck was used 90 times, and it would have been more, but they cut 40 minutes from the movie to avoid an X rating. All right. Well, this movie didn't get – oh, X rating. I'm sorry. Yeah. I, I thought you said R. Uh, I heard X and R registered somehow. Anyhow, this movie is a wonderful Christopher Walken movie. It's one of the very few movies that Walken plays the lead. And Lawrence Fishburne is actually uh, on IMDb credited sorry as larry oh. fishburn okay so this ah. is very early lawrence fishburn shortly thereafter he refused to acknowledge that he was larry and would only answer to lawrence fishburn and lawrence fishburn gives an amazing uh performance in this movie he plays a really over-the-top wild loose cannon gangster uh, and Christopher Walken ha it does a really good job as the lead and uh if there's some really good quotable lines Okay. From here on, nothing goes down unless I'm involved. No blackjack, no dope deals, no nothing. A nickel bag gets sold in the park. I want in. You guys got fat while everybody starved on the street. It's my turn. Hmm. You think you're gonna live long enough to spend that money, you fucking hump? If any of you are tired of getting ripped off by guys like that, you come with me. I'm at the Plaza Hotel. You're welcome. You're all welcome. Enjoy. This is a great movie. If you haven't seen it, you absolutely 100% have to watch this. Well, I, I'll tell you what, though. Lawrence Fishburne, he is like my favorite all-time overactor. Like, he's one of those guys, he overacts in everything, but it's like brilliant. It's like you love to see him overact. The only time I hate his overacting is in um, Matrix 2 or 3 when they're down in Zion and he gives that speech. 
and the voice that he puts on is like, I, you know what I'm talking about? I, I, I kind of remember, but like, I didn't love the second two Matrixes. I, I, matrices? How would you pluralize that? <laughs> Matrixes, I suppose. <laughs> but uh, yeah, go back and watch that one scene where he's giving the, the speech from the like Cliff in Zion. It's really, really weird. All right, All right. moving on. Yes, sir. Number nine, Dark Angel, gross $4 million. Dolph Lundgren, a renegade cop, is forced to work with an FBI agent in order to bring down a group of drug dealers with sinister plans. Wah, wah, wah. Directed by Craig Baxley, uh, who was a very successful stunt coordinator, not a very successful director. He did. The, he was the stunt coordinator for Predator. I'll watch anything. He, I mean, Maybe not, actually. I love the Predator, though. What else did I'm he not- stunt direct? I want to watch anything else he directed the stunts for. <laughs> yeah, well, listen, I'm not. Dolph Lundgren cannot carry a film for me, so I'm not going to watch this one. Dolph Lundgren could barely be the secondary character of the film, so. <laughs> yep. <laughs> All right. Uh, going on to number eight. Now, I've never seen this movie. Have you ever seen Miller's Crossing? No, and I know I'm supposed to have, and I haven't. So Yeah, so I, I, I did some research that we're going to be watching this movie in the near future. So it only earned $4.7 million. However, this movie has a lot of acclaim behind it. Like, a lot of people get behind this movie. So just for example, IMDb has it ranked as number four on its top hidden gems from the 90s. That's awesome. Um, yeah. So an advisor to a Prohibition-era crime boss tries to keep the peace between warring mobs but gets caught in divided loyalties. So right there, like, I love a uh, period piece. So especially yeah. Prohibition-era stuff. That, yes. that just spikes my intrigue. Yes. Um, it's directed and written by the Coen brothers. This might have been one of their first movies, uh, if not nice. their first movie. Nice. Um, Actually, no, I'm sorry, because they directed Raising Arizona before this. So uh, Raising Arizona was their first movie. So this is their second, I guess. Um, Fargo, The Big Lebowski, No Country for Old Men, in case you don't know who the Coen brothers are. And starring Gabriel Byrne from Usual Suspects, uh, Marcy Gay Harden from Mystic River, The Mist and Into the Wild, and again, John Turturro. John Polito, and there are appearances by Steve Buscemi and even Sam Raimi. Wow. Yeah, well, Sam Raimi, apparently he's the real reason. The, the Sam Raimi and the Coen brothers, like, they were up and coming together and they were very good friends. So they did yeah. a lot of stuff together. And this was just Sam Raimi just wanting to be part of their film. And Frances McDormand has an uncredited role, so she makes an appearance. The Coen brothers actually turned down Batman to make this movie. Oh, that. Oh, I. I don't know what to say about that. I don't know yeah. if it was a good decision or not. It doesn't sound like it was a good decision, but I mean, I, this movie supposedly the brothers, hidden, aren't they? Right. Yes, exactly. And this is this movie's a hidden gem. I want to see it. Um, could you imagine saying no to making Batman? Because that's, that's you got to give them credit though, because that's like holding on to like you know that's not, not selling out. Like they could have well. Also, at that time, to make a superhero movie, like they never they never did well. So. Yeah, I guess true. I guess to deny that and make something that is more or less more like a film as opposed right. to whatever a superhero movie might have been at that time. All right. Well, anyway, I want to see this movie. We need to watch it soon. I agree with you. Coming in at number seven, Hardware, uh, grossing approximately six million dollars, sci-fi horror. In an American ravaged by atomic warfare, nomads spend their days scavenging for scraps. That's how ex-soldier Moses Baxter, who's Dylan McDermott, comes into possession of spare Android parts. He buys them as a present for his artist girlfriend, Jill, who's Stacy Travis. 
uh, who plans to put them in a sculpture, which he doesn't know is that the pieces come from a new kind of android that is capable of reassembling itself. This is, this is, this is too much. <laughs> and it's programmed to kill. Listen, I had to give you a paragraph for you to understand this ridiculous plot. And that's I would it. I would There's, argue that that paragraph did nothing but confuse me. Well, it's it's <laughs> over, so you could go back living I'm, your life now. I'm moving on. All right, this is funny about love. This is the name of this movie. Earned 8.1 million dollars, starring Gene Wilder and, and uh, Kristen La- Lady. I uh, definitely messed that name up. Okay. Um, it's directed by Leonard Nimoy, so there's an interesting yeah. fact. It's about a cartoonist who I don't know. He can't get pregnant with his girlfriend and. So he finds a new girl and then wants to go back to his old girl. It's really confusing. We'll move on. Okay. Narrow margin number five grossed approximately $11 million. A crime thriller starring Gene Hackman. Again, Hackman's pumping out movies this year. Uh, Los Angeles deputy district attorney is sent to protect a woman who accidentally witnessed a mafia murder. Directed by Peter Hyams, who directed uh, 2010 with Roy Scheider. End of Days with Schwarzenegger and Time Cop with Van Damme. That's it. Coming in at number four, Death Warrant. In a violent and corrupt prison, decorated cop Lewis Burke must infiltrate the jail to find answers to a number of inside murders. Not one murder, a number of inside murders. But any what, number? Like any pick a number. number? They didn't tell us what number. <laughs> okay. <laughs> when he finds the struggle of life and death tied to his own past course it's tied to him why not uh directed by darren seraphine hold on wait tied to his own past but if it wasn't tied to his past i argue that the movie would not be about him right so it has to be tied to his past (laughs) so directed by darren seraphine he Uh, directed a bunch of tv shows but also terminal velocity which i've seen once and we will see again before this podcast is over i've never seen terminal velocity all right, starring Jean-Claude Van Damme. And that's it. Uh, and then Robert Guillaume, who voiced Rafiki in The Lion King. Okay. And Art LaFleur's in this movie, too. I don't know if you know who that is. No. He played the babe in The Sandlot. He just, like, I don't know, his face is just very familiar to me, Art LaFleur. Okay. Yeah. Well, All right. I'm prepared to move on. Me, too. <laughs> so- let me so tell we, you, th- these movies were not that good sounding. We had all, one. All, all, well, hold on. We have one Miller's Crossing that's supposed to be amazing that we never seen, uh, and King of New York, which is amazing that you've never seen. So we had two. And we're up to our top three movies. Coming in at number three, Pacific Heights, earning $29 million. Carter Hayes has come to San Francisco. He will search for the perfect apartment. He will find the perfect landlords. And now, the game begins. I'm uh, I'm your new tenant. I'm Carter Hayes. Melanie Griffith. Matthew Modine. And Michael Keaton. Mr. Hayes? Mr. Hayes? 
Pacific Heights. All right, so look, this movie, I had me begging for it to be over within the first five, ten minutes of this movie, okay? You say the first five, ten minutes. I would argue the first hour and ten minutes of this movie. All I wanted was it to stop. All right, I disagree with that. So the opening scene was wild, okay, with Beverly D'Angelo and Michael Keaton, where the guys come in and they're beating the light, the life oh, out yeah. of Michael Keaton. I, I thought, oh, great start to a movie. And I wrote, dang, he got messed up. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So anyway, it got so boring immediately that I was like, I, I, I had to turn it off. I watched 15 minutes of it, and then I had to turn it off. It but was then, so boring for so long. No, come on. The whole movie... Like was first of all, them buying the house. It was all like a mundane Saturday afternoon that turned into a big like like it was like watching somebody try and pay their phone bill that was too high and like arguing for it to be low. Like the whole the whole movie, like I just wanted to go away. I thought that this could have been like a better movie as a rom com with like uh, Meg Ryan and um and Matthew Modine and like the struggles of their relationship and owning the house or whatever. Or take out all of the phone calls to like lawyers and uh, like real estate people I know, you on what they can do. All right, so let's Who get cares? to the plot because we didn't do that. So the plot is Michael Keaton's kind of like a scam artist and he's like a real evil dude, but he's not really that evil. And um, he goes around. His, his scam is, I guess, squatting, I think is the proper term, where he'll just sit in the house. And then the law in certain areas is... Because he's there, you can't get him out without due process. And then right. he tries to take over the people's houses. He's done it successfully before, and now he's trying to do it to uh, Melanie Griffith and Matthew Modine, who are uh, in a relationship together, and they're buying their first house together. And if he, you forgot to say, if he can't take over the house, he strips the house for parts and sells them. <laughs> well, he, I just, yeah, he, <laughs> just, that was he, interesting. Yeah, he demolishes the house, which is sort of what he did here. So anyway. I thought then uh, the movie changed for me. The tone changed for me when I felt like the anxiety of having Keaton in the house and he couldn't get any money from him. And Keaton was just a real piece of shit. And the court system was against them. And like you're sitting there like frustrated me being 40 years old. You know, I'm sitting there thinking if I had this tenant in my house, I would be losing my godforsaken mind because he's not paying. He's not answering the door when you're knocking on it and you can't do anything to get him out. But it's frustrating, yes, but that's all it is. There's, I didn't find it entertaining. I didn't find it worth watching. I didn't find there was nothing interesting about what was going on. It was literally just watching a man squat in a house and the two tenant uh, landlords getting frustrated to hell about what was going on. Well, I like, disagree with you. Uh, because well, I'm, I'm going to disagree with you because I didn't think it was a great movie. Don't get me wrong, but I disagree with you because it evoked the emotion that I feel that, that it was looking for. I was frustrated and angry at what was going on. Yeah, but you spend an hour and 20 minutes getting frustrated and angry. It was way too... This movie was at least a half hour too long, minimum. Like maybe 45 minutes too long. I, I would have liked to see this movie done and wrapped up in, I don't know, an hour and 20 minutes. And I'm not even joking. 80-minute movie tops. Um, the whole build-up, too. Like at first, the first, like, I don't know, a couple of weeks that Keaton squatting there. They're like way too easy going about all the crap he's doing. Like they, they let everything go for so long. And it, it isn't until 
Modine just decides to flip out that they even do anything about him squatting there. Like, that's what I'm saying, though. Like, there was just so much of this movie that I felt could have been just cut out and it would have been better. I had to take out one of my notes, right? Because I wrote down early on in the movie that she had the worst role because she was annoying me with how help how helpless her character was. But then in the third act, she completely changes and Matthew Modine is the idiot, turns out, and she goes, she's the saving grace to get at least some sort of redemption for everything that Keaton did to See, her. See, but that's where I think you missed it because it wasn't that Melanie Griffith was useless. It was that Matthew Modine wanted to be the man and take care of everything, but literally had no clue what he was doing and was the idiot the whole time. I thought that was very clear because at an hour and 10 minutes into the movie, because I looked at it, that's when Melanie Griffith starts taking over and just saying, I got this, right? And she goes ham, and the whole rest of the movie, I thought, was great until, well, we'll get to that. But the, the final scene? The, yeah, the final yeah, scene. Please, no, atrocious. discuss it now, because we could, uh, I want to get into it, because the ridiculousness of, uh, so Matthew Modine has his arm broken. He's He was shot by uh, Michael Keaton in an earlier uh the what it's the like word a few days in earlier scene like a few days earlier in the movie right right so uh, so anyway uh, long story short michael keaton gets a, a restraining order against, against matthew modine and he matthew modine isn't even allowed to come back to his own house sneaks in because michael keaton makes some ploy or whatever and sees modine shoots him in quote-unquote self-defense right so now modine's got his arm in a sling he's hobbling around whatever he's in bad shape and um, Griffin finds herself in Keaton's apartment in a physical fight. And uh, Modine's solution to help is that there's a little go under the floorboards. Yeah, there's a little <laughs> hole in the floorboards that he noticed earlier because Keaton's doing all this ridiculous thing, these things, and there's there's roaches and whatever Keaton's doing to try and disrupt the household. Uh, and so he goes back under the floorboards. And she gets Keaton to like back up to the area where the hole is in the floorboards. And he and, does the whole arm waving. Yeah, like, so Modine oh, grabs him by the ankle and he and Keaton does the like you said, the arm waving and falls backwards onto two exposed pipes that, you know, they they what's the word impale him. Yeah. And but that was like it was so stupid. You couldn't why did you have to have the call back to the hole in the floor? You couldn't do something different. Right. And you're also forgetting the whole part where that scene starts off with Michael Keaton standing over Modine sleeping on the couch and he beats him with a golf club. Yeah. Yet Modine's fine. Wasn't the whole point you were trying to kill him? I don't I don't understand. Like you, I, you I, argue, have killed him. I, I argue that he wasn't not fine. He was in bad shape, but he was still alive and able to walk around. So whatever. And climb through a crawl space and grab an ankle. Yeah. All right. It was ridiculous. I, well, all right. So I, we'll, we'll get to our topics. I want to go over the actors and other roles quickly because I, I saw a lot of um, a lot of people in this movie that had like uh, other roles elsewhere. So number one, Modine. Uh, He's uh, Drake Goodman in this movie. He plays uh, Joker in Full Metal Jacket. He's also the co-star of Cutthroat Island, the movie that bankrupted Carolco. Yeah. Uh, he's in Stranger Things, and he's in The Dark, the dark Knight Rises. He's um, fully in Dark Knight Rises. Yeah. Michael Keaton plays Carter Hayes. There's who's Michael Keaton? I don't know who that is. Yes. <laughs> There's an actor called Mako uh, who plays the tenant. He's also in Conan, Conan the Barbarian and Conan the Destroyer. He's also in Ro RoboCop 3, Rising Sun, Seven Years in Tibet, 
and the bird people in China, which is a Takashi Miike movie, which I've seen before. I love Takashi Miike. He's also in Pearl Harbor as the Japanese admiral. Right. He's, yeah, no, I, I, I saw this guy's face and I knew he was familiar. I've seen him in a lot of stuff. So I have two more. He's in Memoirs of a Geisha and he voiced Splinter in Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, the 2007 version. All right. Laurie Metcalf makes another display uh, and makes another appearance rather in this movie as the uh, really helpless lawyer. And uh, Tracy Walter is the exterminator. He's Cookie in City Slickers. Nice. All right, well, that's all did, I got. Wait, hold on. I was just looking while we were talking at Laurie Metcalf's uh, IMDb. Did you know she was she plays Andy's mom in Toy Story? No way. Yeah. Oh, that's crazy. <laughs> All right, the director. Sorry, the director is John Schlesinger. Uh, Midnight uh, Cowboy and Marathon Man were the only two real notable. Yeah, uh, you, movies I saw I, for him. I also noticed that uh, he went to Oxford, which I thought was impressive, and he won an Oscar for Best Director of Midnight Cowboy. All right, all right. So, best scene, worst scene. So after Keaton like disappears. She tracks him down. She finds him using her boyfriend's name, goes to the hotel and just starts spending all of his money from the hotel room, just like blowing up everything, shutting bank accounts down. It was it was just fun watching her do it because she really seemed like she was having a good time. So I had a good time. It was great. Yeah. Um, though the whole time, all I thought was, well, when you're done with this, like he's going to know you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Poor plan. Poor plan. I did enjoy that scene, though. So, yeah, that's what I that was my best scene. All right, so I think my favorite scene was uh, where uh, Melanie Griffith uh, goes to visit uh, Beverly D'Angelo uh, because I, like, I, I think Beverly D'Angelo was so... I'm used to her in the vacation movies, and she's going hard in the paint in this movie as like a real dirtbag, like terrible. She's smoking in every chain scene. Chain smoking, yeah. Yeah, her hair... Actually, chain smoking, yes. Her hair is a disaster. And I just thought that Beverly D'Angelo was going so hard, doing such a good job of being out of her typical character that I enjoyed seeing it. Worse scene? Yeah, it's, it's always nice seeing an actor, you know, stray from uh, what they're known for. And she had such a small role. I think that she was just kind of like having fun with doing something out of her typical role. So yeah, and she was believable too. It wasn't like it was uh, a hard sell either. Like she she was good at it. Yeah. All right. Worst scene. Worst scene I have was the whole final, the final scene where, with Keaton's death. We already discussed that. We don't got to go into that anymore. My worst scene. Do you remember Modine's dream sequence, where he I, see? I need I need to be reminded. It's 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 a my my point in bringing this up is that this dream sequence does nothing to further the plot of the movie. It was so out of place and it was just ridiculous. It it didn't need to be there and it was silly. So yeah. Also, another bad scene was the whole exterminator scene. I love that scene. I found that's it so where annoying. You see, that's where you see Cookie from City Slickers. Otherwise, he's not in the movie. It's true. I just found him annoying. All right, best best role. Uh, best role I said it was Keaton, even though he had a horrible death and was terrible at dying. I thought Keaton had the best role in this movie. <laughs> well, I completely object. My best role was Melanie Griffith because she did nothing for two thirds of the movie, but the last third of the movie, she was the entire movie. Well, I actually wrote right next to that, and I really liked Mel- Melanie Griffith. So we agree on Melanie Griffith. I thought, but I thought Keaton plays such a good creep, and he was really creepy the whole movie. I no? thought it. 
I thought it was stereotypical. I thought he did nothing memorable. Tell me one thing he said or did in the entire movie. It was it wasn't what he said or did. It was just the way he just carried he was, himself as presence in the movie. He was um rolling uh for lack of a better term, a razor blade between his fingers like a gangster from the twenties would do a quarter. And that's supposed to do what for me? That's supposed to be make me afraid of you? Well, yeah, bro, because he doesn't get cut. He's bulletproof. All right. Most quotable Razor. lines? I have none because I didn't think anything was quotable. I have Honestly. a pretty – I have a, a, a good um, – it's a back and forth between, uh, between Melanie Griffith and Matthew Modine. So Griffith says, you're losing your sense of humor. Modine says, no, I'm not. And then she replies, yes, you are. You're becoming a crotchety old man with this building. Next thing I know, you're going to have hair growing out of weird places on your face and be walking around with a toilet plunger, griping about property taxes and people who take long showers. I thought the way that she delivered it was funny. I, All right. I, I didn't I, I do just, it justice. And I didn't love this movie. So, like, I really, like, the last, like, 25 minutes were interesting enough. The, the middle part was just, like I said, it was like watching someone do your taxes. It wasn't, like exciting to me we also have to have the worst role which i said was modine i think you oh, would agree so. with me on that <laughs> no i said keaton uh, you said keaton you thought this was the worst all right oh, yeah. there wasn't much to do with the role i guess maybe but i i thought he played it well all right moving on number two postcards from the edge grossing 38 million dollars just came by to say hi make sure that everything's up to snuff and we're gonna need a drug screen excuse me formality of the business so do you want blood or urine i think urine would be fine and uh we'll see you outside okay have fun thanks hello dear oh. hi mama no you see she's exactly like me when i was her age what i'm doing i, I feel like i belong after film i, I never necessary. stopped working i know how to do very, that very good therapy for me after my divorce and my miscarriages how would you like to have joan crawford for a mother Oh, or Lana please. Turner. These are the options. Are you sure I didn't sleep with you? Sleep? Yeah. I was with him Saturday night. That's two girls in one day. Yeah. Yeah, that's just the ones we know about. You said you loved me. I admit it at the time. Well, what is it, a viral love? Kind of a 24-hour thing? Never let him see you ache. That's what Mr. Mary used to say. What was it, ass? Never let him see your ass. You know, you were a lot more fun when you were loaded. No! 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 Relax. They're blanks. I don't get your generation's humor half the time. Remember my 17th birthday party when you lifted your skirt up in front of all those I people? I did not lift my skirt. It's world up! And you weren't wearing any underwear. Well. Meryl Streep. Shirley MacLaine. In a Mike Nichols film. Oh, Lowell, I'm sorry. Postcards from the Edge. Oh, me. Oh. So starring Meryl Streep, Shirley MacLaine, Dennis Quaid, Gene Hackman, and Richard Dreyfuss make appearances, and Rob Reiner. Uh, so this is a movie about an, the daughter of an actress who's also an actress herself who loses herself to, you know, a drug addiction and 
you know, it's basically just her trying to climb out of this hole that she's created for herself because, you know, she kind of goes a little too hard on set one day and gets forced into rehab and has to, you know, reestablish her career as an actress. And it's also really about her reconnecting with her mother and just, you know, just life in stardom that has fallen. It's also the most important point that you may have uh, forgot. It's uh, Carrie Fish, based on Carrie Fisher's semi-autobiographical novel. So it's basically about Carrie Fisher. Well, I actually looked into that a little bit more uh, today. And Carrie Fisher actually says that this is not based on her life at all. And this was not her relationship with her mother. And then people just assume that it was her because they assume she has a lack of imagination. <laughs> so that's, she, was, she said that. <laughs> Well, that sound, that's absurd because she wrote a semi-autobiographical novel based on this, this information. So is that not contradictory to what had happened? Well, she specifically was talking about her relationship with her mother, which I would argue is 90% of this movie. Also, so like, sorry. So, so maybe it's about her, her fall from stardom because she herself was an addict and, and all that, but most of this movie is really about this, about Meryl Streep's character getting back together with her mother, right? Okay, I'll accept that. Uh, also had Annette Bening and Oliver Platt uh, that you skipped oh, over. That's right. Well, they had minor, uh, minor parts. So getting to the, the point of this movie, um, you went over the plot, but uh, I was really pleasantly surprised having watched this movie. I had no idea what it was about. I thought it was something completely different. I thought I was going to see a really sappy Meryl Streep movie, and it wasn't that. She was captivating on film. Absolutely. I, and, loved, I loved seeing her. Every second she was on screen, I was not bored. And let's talk about the chemistry between her and Shirley MacLaine. I mean, like, I thought every time Meryl Streep was on the screen, she lit up the screen, but when you threw in Shirley MacLaine there, it was... It was really, really good back and forth between the two of them. They had such great chemistry. Yeah. Also, I wrote Dreyfus with exclamation points when he showed up on screen. And so then, did I. <laughs> and then at the end of the movie, my, my final note was I needed way more Dreyfus. There was definitely not enough Dreyfus in this movie. What do you have? Two, like, three-minute scenes? He might have. He, no, that's, that's, that's definitely double the amount of time that he was on screen. He might have been on screen for, like, two minutes. Yeah, it was it was not a lot of Dreyfus. We could have had more. No, I, and then I also thought that Dennis Quaid, while he played the character well, I hated the character. So I, kudos to him for to doing hate the character. Yeah. <laughs> if you let me finish my my thought, I said kudos to him for doing a good job playing a character I hated, but I hated the guy. Yeah. Well, I also want to talk about Gene Hackman and how the movie starts off with Gene uh, Hackman, and he's on fire. Another great role. Movie. Another great role. Go ahead. Uh, the whole him playing the director and like being pissed off at everybody, especially Meryl Streep, and just he he just lit like I said, Meryl Streep lit up the screen. He he like took the screen and just took over everything when he was when he was in the movie. The two role, the two scenes that he was in, both were phenomenal. That he stole the show both times. Yes, it was it was awesome. Uh, I, I would argue that like if you're a Gene Hackman fan, just to see those two moments of him on film were just phenomenal. Phenomenal. I, I completely agree with you. Well, let me ask you a question. What was the deal with all of the Fritos and Diet Coke placement? Like every was so uh, so. I know she was a drug addict, right? Is that her thing? That like all she ate was Fritos and Diet Coke. 
Well, they do make a point of saying that she like eats the the chips and the drinks the soda to like substitute her addiction. Yeah, uh, I assume that the Fritos and Diet Coke are just the the product placement. Product placement, and that's really it. <laughs> but yeah, she's always snacking, and that they do make a point of that in the movie. Did you notice the man's theater again? Do you know what what was playing this time? No, I, I never. This is your uh, area of expertise. I never noticed these things. So, what was Le- playing? Lethal Weapon Two. Oh, fantastic! It's a great movie. <laughs> it is a great movie. Anything with Mel Gibson is great. Anything. And I, I also noted too, like the the subtlety of the acting when when sh- they tell Street when she's on set doing that one movie, and she tells uh, they tell her that there's live snakes on the set. Like she was like visibly like disgusted, but also knew she had to suck it up. And the <laughs> facial expressions that she displayed, I thought was just it was done perfectly. Just seeing the development from her of her lowest of lows to just regaining herself. It was just a great it was a great arc throughout the whole I, movie. Yeah, I thought I thought everybody involved did a great job. Let's hit our um let's hit our categories. Director Mike Nichols died in twenty fourteen at eighty three years old. He did The Graduate, which we thought was the uh, freshman, the freshman <laughs> and we are now well aware that it's not. Yes. Who's Afraid of Virginia Wolf was in The Graduate was 67. Who's Afraid of Virginia Wolf was in 66. Biloxi Blues was in 88 regarding Henry, 91. The Birdcage, a phenomenal Robin Williams movie, 96. Charlie Wilson's War in 07. Um, Carrie Fisher wrote both the book and the screenplay for this movie. Uh, and anything else to add for director? No, that's it. Uh, you hit all the marks that I had noted. Best scene? Best scene. I had a couple of best scenes. If so I do had I. to pick one, though, um, you know, I, I, I try to veer away from the funny scenes as most as much as I can. I yeah. thought one of the best scenes is when Meryl Streep, her character, hits the low point and she's stealing the pills. And you see Shirley MacLaine comes out of the bathroom and sees her stealing the pills. And she, she knows she's stealing them. But right. it, it, just the whole, like, the whole exchange of trying to pretend like she doesn't know that she does she gets in the car she makes herself puke them puke them up because she's really just like really just at her lowest low and um yeah that was it that was that that to me was the best part just watching her hit rock bottom yeah that was a good scene i have two so hackman like we spoke about already yelling at streep in the beginning of this movie and then also hackman coming full circle and embracing her in the second scene. Both of those scenes were phenomenal. Um, a third nominee, uh, Quaid and Street, uh, when they were fighting, at the end, she shoots the blanks at him. And then yes. when she, <laughs> she, she, she drives off, the Spanish gardener jumps out of the way and he screams things in Spanish, which are clearly 80 yard. but I don't know. I found that funny. Yeah, I like that scene too. That was really good, really good. Worst scene? Uh, worst scene. For me, the worst scene was the uh, singing competition. It's not really a competition, but like the whole mother-daughter singing. Oh, God. Yeah. I, 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 want, I fast-forwarded through it, not going to lie. I had uh, a completely different scene. It was the same scene with the singing. <laughs> <laughs> it, was too, it was too long, and I just had it was, no idea what its significance was. It, uh, I understood the, the somewhat significance of it, but it was silly, and I could have definitely done without that five minutes of the movie. It was longer than five minutes. It was like three minutes of singing each. You got a full song from, I guess it's only six minutes, but still. You got full a full song. song from both of them. It was terrible. Yep. Uh, best role? For me, 
I, I want I have to say Meryl Streep, but everyone in this movie was great. Um, I wanted to say Hackman, but you can't because he only was in the movie for like five minutes. Uh, so you got to say Meryl Streep. I completely agree with you. I would love to say Hackman, but you can't. You have to give this to Meryl Streep. Hundred um, percent. Worst role. I don't have one, honestly. So I, I wrote the same thing. I don't have one. If I had to pick any role, it would just be the series of producers that kept like coming up to Meryl Streep. Stop. And, like, I completely her. object. You could say you could give that to Rob Reiner, but I, I wanted to kiss Oliver Platt's fat face when I saw him on screen. <laughs> okay. Of the three, Oliver Platt was by far the best. Yes. By far. But I, you know, I say worst role. It's just because I didn't like them, but I guess you're not supposed to like them. So like we always say, that's good acting, right? That's right. Uh, you have any quotable lines? I have a few. I have a really good exchange. Go ahead. When Streep gets home late, right, and she walks into the, the, the house, that, like the sun's coming up and her mom's waiting for her. They have this whole exchange. <laughs> but then the mom just looks at her and goes, do you mind if I have a drink? And Streep goes, do you mind if I have acid? Yes. Like, do you mind dear, if I, I drop acid? Yes, dear. I drink socially. I took acid socially. <laughs> I have the same quote, so that's one of mine that you that you took. And then uh, Streep says to the counselor, the the girl that's talking to her when she's in the whatever it is, the recovery house. She goes to her. Do you always talk in bumper stickers? <laughs> yes. And then yes. she said the the girl says another line, and then she whispers to herself, "Oh my God, you do." <laughs> <laughs> oh stop! Let me rewind for a second. I had another best scene uh, that I wanted to talk about. This actually might be the same as the low point, but I, I left out when the the mom starts pouring vodka into her smoothie. Yeah, <laughs> I'd be on the floor. She she's yelling at Street for being an addict, and there she is, literally pours half a bottle of vodka into a smoothie. Yeah, which is she makes it so healthy, and then like <laughs> the, some some encounter some. Uh, conversation occurs between her and street they have some sort of disagreement and because she's pissed off she pours the vodka in the in the smoothie so much vodka <laughs> yeah uh so another another meryl street line you sound like a like a rug salesman i thought that was absurd a rug salesman uh one more quotable line street says thank god i got sober now so i could be hyper conscious for the series of humiliations when she finds out that her agent stole all her money Yes, that was in the, that was that whole scene. That was the the pouring the vodka. Into yeah, the, same scene, yeah. right? Yes, that was the same scene. That, that 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 might be the best scene. I think I'm giving that hands down the best scene. Listen, all in all, I you said you wouldn't watch this again. I don't know if I would go find it, but I would definitely stop if I saw it on TV. If my wife said, you know, I kind of want to watch this movie, I wouldn't say no. I'm just like you said, I'm not going to go out of my way to watch it again, though. Yeah, I well, I agree with you. So it was a good movie. And I, uh, you know what this movie taught me too? because I went into this again saying I was going to hate this movie and I enjoyed it. And not only did I enjoy it, it was a treat to watch this movie. I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm not going in with any preconceived notions whether or not I'm going to like or dislike a movie that I haven't seen before. Absolutely. I mean, you think about it in this month, I was excited about Pacific Heights. So was I. The the whole yeah, Keaton, the premise of the movie seemed good. And then that was the dud, and this was the winner. So, well, it was the runner up because the next no, no, one is the I, I just meant it was a winner, not the yeah. winner. I understand. I just needed to give, give, give Goodfellas another shot in the arm. Listen, here we go. You ready for this roller coaster ride? Bro, I'm so excited. Coming in at number one, we have Goodfellas Grossing. $46.8 million, which is a huge surprise to me. 
Never ran on your friends, and always keep your mouth shut. As far back as I can remember, I always wanted to be a gangster. Hey, Mom, what do you think? You look like a gangster. I know I'd By the time I grew up, there was 30 billion a year in cargo moving through Idlewild Airport. And believe me, we tried to steal every bit of it. What do you do? I'm in construction. He's not Jewish. Mazel tov. For most of the guys, killings got to be accepted. Hey, Henry, here's an arm. Very funny, guys. Here's a leg. Here's a wing. <laughs> what do you like, the leg or the wing? It's you. to live any other way was nuts. <laughs> and we were treated like movie stars with muscle. We had it all just for the asking. It's gonna be a good summer. <laughs> it was a glorious time. In a world that's powered by violence, on the streets where the violent have power, a new generation carries on an old tradition. So look, who needs to, to hear the, the the plot of this movie, right? But it follows Henry Hill around, who was a real life gangster. Okay, um, so Ray Liotta plays Henry Hill. Uh, this was his first lead role. Robert De Niro plays Jimmy Conway. Joe Pesci plays Tommy DeVito. Lorraine Bracco plays Karen Hill. Paul Sorvino plays Paulie, and then you have a slew, a host of other character actors in this movie. And I would I could spend a half hour going through them all, but we'll leave it at that. We'll, we'll encounter some people as we go through. All right. So me and you were talking the other day, and we were talking about the opening scene of this movie. So it starts out, they're driving in the car. They hear a knocking. You don't know what the knocking is. They get out of the car. There's a guy in the trunk. And they proceed to stab him, shoot him, do all these things. And we're just like, what must this have been like for someone who had never seen this movie before? Like, with the first time, because you know, I always remember that scene, but like, I forget that it was that it was you didn't know that. Uh, uh what was his the guy's Bats. name? Billy Bats. Billy Bats was in the back of his car waiting to be murdered because yeah. they thought he they already murdered him. And I, I, I wish I have such a bad memory. I wish to God I could know what I thought the first time I saw this movie play out. See, the problem is I was probably so young when I saw this movie the first time that I didn't definitely did not appreciate it for what it was the first time I saw it. Uh, I mean, I was if it was 1990, I definitely didn't see it in the theater. I probably didn't see it till I mean, I couldn't have seen it at 10, 11, 12 years old. There's no way that my parents would have let me. So I don't know when the first time I saw this movie was, but I also remember seeing Scarface countless times at 16 years old. So it couldn't have been that long after. I had to be well aware of what Goodfellas was. Well, I remember being 10 years old and it not being the first time I've seen this movie. And then me and my friends wanting to be mobsters in the worst way, even though it's the exact <laughs> opposite of what the story is supposed to teach you. You had no idea what the story <laughs> was actually saying. And us trying to start a quote-unquote junior mafia. Yeah. <laughs> we started trying to, to lend money to people. We started trying to be loan sharks. We started trying to, like just like rob people like we thought we thought we were going to be real life mobsters 
that's an amazing story and i'm <laughs> i'm happy that i know that now <laughs> all right so that leads into the after the opening scene of them killing uh bats in the back of the car yeah they go to the introduction of what it is and why he wants to be a monster and it's like literally like it just reminded me of my childhood after watching this movie and wanting to be a mobster because of this scene where he just talks about how great the mafia is so the the the, the next scene is the still on henry's face and then it's as far as as far back as i can remember i always wanted to be a gangster and then the next song comes in and let me tell you something this movie is like comfort food for the soul for me if you put this movie on there's no chance that i could have a bad time no chance no not at all i rewatched it today <laughs> <laughs> that's great <laughs> The next scene is with, uh, I'm just going to go through some of my favorite scenes and so we could talk about them as we go and you can interject with the same at any, at any point in time. Uh, young Henry looking at the cab stand and narrating, like you said, uh, introducing all of the characters. You see Paul Sorvino, you see his brother Tootie, you see um, uh, all the, you know, the gangsters coming and going. It's just, as you're introduced to the characters and in this time, like we're, we're back in what, the 50s, I suppose? Ray Liotta's performance and his his his, uh, his voiceover, his narration in this scene was just so enthralling, and yes. it got me so hyped up. It was like it was some. It just it might be the best narration I, that's ever happened in a movie. Iconic. It's it's the only word for it. It's iconic. I'm gonna try and I'm gonna try and throw in my quotable lines because this movie has countless. A million. So I'm going to try and throw my quotable lines as we go through the scene. And in that scene, uh, as um, Ray Liotta is narrating, he goes, Paulie might have moved slow, but that's only because Paulie didn't have to move for anybody. Like, again, the adoration in Ray Liotta's voice for the life of a mobster is just outstanding. He gives so much passion to that quote that how do you not love what he's saying? Yeah, I, I don't understand. So where, where, and then the next scene where Henry comes home he, uh, from the cab stand. Um, the dad finds out he wasn't, he hasn't been going to school. Well, yeah, and then no, be, when when he opens up the door, he's like, he's like, hey, Ma, what do you think of my new suit? She's like, My God, you look like a gangster. And and then that moves right into they shot me. And then <laughs> this is all within like ten minutes. I could, I can't, no, I don't even think... want to move forward yet. I think I paused the movie after the, 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 the scene with the guy getting shot and Henry getting yelled at for wasting the aprons. Yeah, he wasted <laughs> eight aprons on this guy. I don't know what's wrong with this kid. We got to toughen this kid up. God forbid he saves the guy's life. Yeah. So, All right, so I paused it. I think at that point it was at eight minutes and 30-something seconds. And there's, <laughs> there's, there's like seven iconic scenes, and then it's like one iconic scene per minute. Yes, it, it, it's I want to watch control. it right now. I want to watch it again right now. <laughs> it, it, so and then and so uh, another iconic shot, right? After he's uh, banging out all the windows of the cat of the cars, and he's pouring the gasoline, and he lights them all up, and they explode, and they got that still on him as he's running away. And then the voiceover again goes, "One day, one day, some of the kids from the neighborhood carried my mother's groceries all the way home. You know why? It was out of respect." Yes, so good. And uh, I think he had already gotten his ass kicked by his dad, or was that later? Yeah, no, his dad whooped him. Uh, All right, because I I love that whole 
that whole thing that's going on there because so he comes home from school and his dad's like or supposedly comes home from school his dad's like how was school today? He's like, it was good it was good it's great you learned something he goes yeah i learned a lot of things goes, well you haven't been there in over a month yeah. <laughs> kicks the shit out of him yeah. and he goes the way i saw it everyone needs to take a beating sometimes and then he's telling Paulie what happened, and they go. What do they do? They go and they beat the shit out of the mailman for delivering the letter to the dad. That, like, that's the <laughs> most. It's the most uncalculated response to what you could have done. <laughs> but they didn't assume there was going to be another mailman to take his place. <laughs> they just beat him after death. After that, they he never goes, got another letter from my school. Yeah, <laughs> never got like, any letters. He's like. He's like. You deliver one more letter to this kid's house from that school, in the oven you're going to go. It was so over the top and amazing. It was amazing. All right, what about the first time we meet Jimmy Conway at the, the quote-unquote casino? Oh, and he's just handing out stacks of money to everyone everywhere he goes. Yeah, he's talking about it. He gives the bartender $20 just for keeping the ice cold. It was... And then they show us the young Pesci, the the guy that's playing young Pesci. It's like literally the perfect casting. It looked like Joe Pesci at 13. The fact that young Pesci calls Henry Hendry with a D in there <laughs> is amazing to me. I never, I could have never get over that. Never rat on your friends and always keep your mouth shut. So moving on then after you see them after they're, they're just a, a little bit older, right? And then you got the steady cam shot introducing all the gangsters. Was Anthony Stabile, How you doing? Frankie Carbone, and then there was Mo Black's brother, Fat Andy, and his guys, Frankie the Wop, Freddie No Nose, and then there was Pete the Killer, who was Sally Balls' brother, and you had Nicky Eyes. And Mikey Francesi. And Jimmy Two Times, who got that nickname because he said everything twice, like... I'm going to go get the papers, get the papers. It's... How can you do it any better? How could you have done that scene any better? Get the papers, get the papers. So let's talk about the, the maybe, arguably, the most iconic scene of the entire movie is uh, Pesci's I'm Funny How. Funny like a clown? Am I here for your amusement? Apparently, the story goes that Pesci seen a gangster do this to somebody else, but they didn't. This wasn't scripted, so the reaction of the people surrounding the two of them while they were doing this was like kind of like a semi genuine reaction to to what was going on. And I love when the guy is like, he's like, "Oh, Tommy, you got it all wrong." He's like, "Well, well Anthony, he's a big boy. He knows what he said." And then. <laughs> The shocked look on Leota's face, like he has no idea what's going on. And he's like, Right, right. So that makes sense if it was unscripted. So, like, Leota really had no idea what was going on or what to say. He had to think about it and it was on the spot. So that's pretty cool. He's just sitting there, like, like shocked. He has no idea where Tommy's going with the thing. And he's just like, I don't know. He's like, Without saying it, he's like, I, I, he's like, I don't know what's going on. He's, he's got like his hands up, his shoulders are back, his eyes are wide. <laughs> he's like, I, you're funny the way you tell the story. It's funny. It's funny. That's all. That's and, all. And then Pesci, when Pesci finally lets it go, he's like, he's like, I worry about you, Hendry. You might fold under questioning. <laughs> so Sonny sit down with Paulie. After Pesci breaks the bottle over his head, <laughs> he goes, "This fucking guy, I'm sorry. I know he's, I know he's your friend, but he's a fucking asshole." <laughs> he, he's like, 
And then Paulie's, he's like, he's telling Paulie that he wants him to be a partner. And Paulie looks at Henry and he goes, it's not even fair, no? Like, he's like, why? He's like, what? he's basically telling the guy, like, why would you make me do this to you? Do you know, you know what's going to happen if you make me a partner? So then As they bleed him dry, right? They, yeah. They, like, use him for then, everything. Yeah. Henry's narrating. Sell so, for half the price out the back. <laughs> yeah. He's like, it doesn't matter. It's all profit. So then, and now the the line that Henry gives is now the guy's got to come up with Paulie's money every every week. Business is bad. Fuck you, pay me. Oh, you had a fire. Fuck you, pay me. Place got hit by lightning, huh? Fuck you, pay me. And then he's like, and then once once the money stops coming in, what do you do? The only thing left to do, light a match. Ray Liotta's laugh in this movie, amazing. When I was younger, though, like it used to annoy me. I'm like, it's so over the top. And I'm like, no, it's because this guy's. He's a lunatic. He, yes. he doesn't know what the real world is like. He he literally is that crazy that he's just whatever he's feeling, it's out there for the world. My next another best scene is like when so when she rolls up on him after he stands her up for the date. Yeah. And she's screaming at him and all the everyone's laughing. But he's like completely unfazed by it though. Like you'd think he'd be embarrassed and he's not. The yeah. way Leoto chose to play this character is amazing. Like yeah. the guy just has no sense of reality. It just nothing phases him and it's great. Yeah, no, he's he's definitely the perfect, perfect role for this. Uh then so the next scene is obviously the so this is one thing we could touch on with um uh, I guess uh, cinema knowledge and whatnot. The iconic Steadicam shot when they're moving through the Copacabana. Oh, yes, Flawless. it's an amazing scene. It's it's uh, everybody knows it's amazingly shot. It's an amazing scene and how they did it and blah blah blah. But I I can't move on without br- at least bringing it up. Let's talk about the fact that this is now this the second or third time that all you're doing is following them through a set. Yeah, that's it. They're just saying about the, they're just talking about the life, and it's a good five minute chunk. Both of both following through, like, and it's not boring. It's I just want more of it. But it's it's the furthest thing from boring. That's I, what I'm I, saying. But I, it should, I'm, like, you think about it, it should be boring, like right? The whole walking through the uh the back of the Copacabana, like it should be boring, but it's not. It's I, I want more of it. Yeah, more. I, I feel like this movie's not long enough. Um, and then you finally get some real conversation between him and Karen when they finally sit down at the table. Karen goes, what do you do? Henry says, I'm in construction. She replies, you don't feel like you're in construction. He goes, uh, I'm a union delegate. <laughs> and then the guys are buying them. Everyone's buying them champagne or wine or whatever it is, sending drinks to the table. The guy, yeah. the, 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 they start rolling through all the different dates. Like you have the, yes. the famous people up on stage. They're all nodding at henry every time they see him it's it's they just make it seem so amazing to be a gangster at this point in the movie yeah i mean well that's part of the allure right and then it so also this is uh, i'll touch on it scorsese grew up in manhattan in little italy and he, he the reason why he does so many gangster movies is because of he he likes to stick to what he knows he says so uh that's you know, part of the reason why he does this so well. But anyway, moving on. Uh, the next scene, Henry beats up the neighbor. Oh, hands to the gun and says, "Hide this." And then he, I love the, I love after, I love after he beats the guy up, and then he just like he turns and points the gun at the next guy, and the guy's like, "Don't shoot." <laughs> <laughs> and then, but then when he hands to the gun, and then the narration switches, it's 
pretty seamless when she, when you yeah, start hearing from Karen's up. point of view. Yeah, yeah. I think it, that that adds such a different layer to the movie that you could have gotten away with not doing that, but I think it was brilliant to put it in there. And then they go back to Henry at the end, which I thought was amazing. Yeah. I don't, I don't, well, I'm not, I'm not the most knowledgeable far from it as far as cinema history, but I don't know of another movie that's done that or done that so well. Switch well, narrations. Like when do you ever see that? Right. But I think another piece we have to talk about is the fact that most people hate narrations in movies. Like it's a, it's a long debated topic that like narration in a movie, it doesn't work. There's only like a handful of movies where it does work. Arguably though, some of my favorite movies of all time have narration. Shawshank. Even, that's, that was going to be my go-to. It's this Goodfellas and Shawshank. I mean, are the two movies that are on the top of my head that have narration, and it's brilliantly done in both movies. Yeah. All right, so next is the bat scene at the bar. Uh, Billy Bats. <laughs> the worst. Go and home, a, get your shine box. Now go home and get your fucking shine box. He's like, relax. I'm breaking your balls. I, I just got home. I haven't seen you in six years. I'm breaking your balls a little bit. He's like, all right. He's, he's, Tommy's like, it just does, doesn't always sound like you're kidding. He's like, all right, salute. Now go home and get your fucking shine box. But at that time, he wasn't kidding. <laughs> no. He's, <laughs> and, he's like, He's like one of my favorite lines. To, uh, that one of the things I throw out in, in, from time to time is, "Come on, you fucking feel strong." You know, a lot of the times you have these little quotes from movies that stand out so hard to you, and nobody else really... knows. Nobody else knows what I'm talking about. <laughs> I have by, no idea what you're talking about. By way, by way of example, Tommy in this movie says to Spider, "What do you got me on the pay no mind list?" Not, but a couple weeks ago, I text you because you were ignoring me. You, what do you got me on the pay no mind list? And your response was, I don't know what the pay no mind list is. <laughs> well, it's these little stupid fucking things that you, you are so iconic to you that are just like, they don't stand out to me. Sorry. Yeah. Well, that's okay. I live in my own world and I, I, I invite people in sometimes. <laughs> sometimes they enjoy it and sometimes they don't. So <laughs> the next messy interview, so they get married, whatever. So the, the whole wedding is phenomenal. First of all, it's like, the exchange of money they're just handing over like envelopes of money the she doesn't understand what's happening uh because it, i guess at this time it's it's only in italian families where they give you money and not gifts and this is a real italian family so you're getting wads of money and yeah. then she's she's all worried about <laughs> she goes what about the money who's watching the money he goes you don't have to worry about the money here <laughs> he found it so amusing that she was worried about the money and then i also thought she did a great job acting overwhelmed in that scene yes because she was overwhelmed i, I was overwhelmed <laughs> i know the narration says that she says like she was overwhelmed she says her head was spinning but she also looked like she was like in a daze so then after the wedding, they're they're living at her parents' house, I guess, and he he keeps staying out late and please, he comes bro, home. Please, I and, love this scene. And the mother just is screaming at him, yelling all this nonsense, and all he does, he doesn't say a word. He just turns around, walks away, just Man. starts hysterically laughing in that Ray Liotta laugh. And then what does Pesci yell at him? Pesci yells something out. I can't remember what it was, and it just She's yelling at him. She's like, "Married people don't stay out this late. What kind of people are you?" And then he walks away laughing. And then Pe Pesci responses, "What the fuck kind of people are they?" <laughs> so, the, so let's move on to the scene at Tommy's mother's house, please. So, first off, are you aware that that's Scorsese's actual mother? Yes. That okay. I know. 
And then another thing that I, I some behind the scenes stuff is that they never gave Pesci, uh, I'm sorry, Scorsese's mother actual direction. They gave her like a scene and some lines and let her do her thing. Because she was just being an Italian mother is what was yeah, happening. Yeah, she was. Yeah, <laughs> was Scorsese. Scorsese had access to the perfect cast Italian mother, his own. Yes. So uh, I love the way that when when Tommy's explaining like why he needs the knife and they can't think of the name of the so you go in the paw the thing the what do you call it and then Jimmy just goes the way the he says it the hoof like oh. he's just and just his face like he figured it out and he's it's just you know what I liked when the mother starts showing off the paintings <laughs> oh I love. <laughs> And she's, like, she's like, I like this one. One dog goes one way, the other goes the other way. And this guy's like, what do you want from me? Yeah. It's like, he's got a nice full head of hair, gray hair. And then uh, De Niro's like, looks like somebody we know. Scorsese's mom was a great addition to this movie. It Because re- she really did feel like that Italian grandmother just like wanted to give them all food. And I'm I trying to figure out, what were they eating? I don't know. She made them breakfast. So oh, it was breakfast. Eggs. Okay, it was eggs. Okay. Because yeah. I was wondering why there was so much ketchup on the table. And I was yeah. like, I, th- I thought they were eating pasta. And I was like, why do they, why do they have ketchup? They're Italian. Oh, God forbid. Scorsese would never allow that. Another uh, behind the scenes thing was the, the way that De Niro gets the ketchup out of the bottle. He specifically asked what way the character that he was playing, the guy's real name wasn't Jimmy Conway in real life. Forget the who's what the character was based on specifically asked the guy which way or or henry he asked henry hill which way the guy would get the ketchup out of the bottle because the character he was playing was the, the, the real life guy loved ketchup so he, he was like would he pound the bottle would he shake it would he roll it and he was like nah he'd roll it so that's how he got the ketchup out of the bottle in the movie wait can i just tell you i love that fact that you just gave me I was sitting here. I was sitting here all slack jawed and like in awe of that story. That was great. <laughs> it's amazing. <laughs> all right. Now we're gonna move to maybe my, my second favorite scene, unless you have something else, but you could you could pull me back. Uh the spider scene. Tommy has four or five insanely quotable lines in this one scene alone. But go ahead, what were you gonna say? Tell me about what you were gonna say because I want to look up this guy's name because he, I need to have his Michael name. Imperioli? Yeah, the guy from uh, it's The Sopranos, Sopranos right? Yeah. He played Christopher in The Sopranos, right? Yeah, he, he's Spider. Fantastic. So, he, he's, he's like a perfect aged uh, for, the, for the character. He's so Italian. He's so, he's so just trying to be there, not trying to do anything wrong, and all Pesci wants to do is fuck with him. <laughs> well, he's, he, he plays an idiot. Like, he, he, he's, he's incompetent. He's Billy Bats to this kid. That's yeah. who he is. He's, he's his Billy Bats, except for doesn't end the same way. Pesci's whole thing. This so I first off, I didn't know that. Ha, not having seen this in a while, I didn't know that the two spider scenes were basically back to back. But um, so t- Tommy's trying to get a drink out of Spider, and he has some number one. Woody got me on the pay no mind list, and then it, it he, Spider's trying to respond, but he keeps on stuttering and and mumbling and and like tripping over his own words. And Tommy goes, "You know, you're a mumbling, stuttering little fuck. You know that." <laughs> Then <laughs> Spider's like, no, I thought you said you was all right. He's like, I am all right. You ain't all right. No, he's like, no, I thought you said you was all right, Spider. He's like, no, you're not all right. You got a lot of fucking problems. <laughs> <laughs> then so then he starts shooting at him like it's the Wild West. Yeah, he says, like, dance, 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 shoots him in the fuck. foot. You fucking shot him. You shot him in the foot, and he 
and he just sits there. He's like, "What's the big deal? I shot him in the foot. He's fine." He's like, he's like trying to make me think what the fuck I did here. <laughs> and then, and then he's like, "All right, you you win." He's like, "Yeah, I'm in." He's like, "How much? Eight hundred? Eight hundred?" And he's like, "All right." And he puts the money. <laughs> they just immediately go back to playing poker. Like nothing happened. But it's the same thing later. Now when we come back, where. You know, Spider tries to stand up to Pesci. And he's like, oh. go, fuck, go fuck yourself. And he's, he's like, what? And, and uh, Rob De Niro's character just looks at Jimmy Conway. He just looks at him and goes, you going to let him get away with that? you going to let him get away with that? Clearly just joking. Yeah. So, he's like, what's the world coming to? And he immediately pulls out the gun. She puts three rounds into him real quick. He's dead. And he goes, the only thing he has to say in response to, what, you killed him. What would you do that for? He goes, I'm a good shot. What do you want? <laughs> and he's like, he's like, you stupid prick. He's like, now you gotta bury him. He's like, I ain't got no lime. He's like, I'll dig the hole with you. Think it's the first hole I ever dug. <laughs> all right, next scene because I could stay here all day is um, uh, the jail scene. Henry has Henry's doing a narration again. He, he says, took the jury six hours to bring us in guilty. Judge gave me and Jimmy ten years like he was giving away candy. They could go to the bar, whatever. Tommy's like, say hello to them hacks, will you? Motherfuck them every chance you get. <laughs> Always with the jokes. And then so Henry gets in a limo, pops a handful of pills, and he's like, now take me to jail. <laughs> and then you get the whole scene. Now here's another one of those walkthrough scenes where they're just, just laying out what's going on. The characters. And the characters, the making the sauce, the, the getting the, the bread, the garlic, the slicing it with the razor, the... The, this, this, the, the, he makes the sauce and he makes the meat. <laughs> well, how, how can you think of what Scorsese did just right there, right? Dissect that for just a second. He takes making dinner when they're in jail. And it's, I don't know, I don't have any other words. I need a thesaurus at this point. It's enthralling. I'm captivated. Uh, I'm enamored. It's, I that scene right there, I could see it right now. You don't even have to put the movie yeah. on. I see Paulie in his robe sitting at the table, slicing the garlic with the razor. But this is just the point I was trying to make before. It's just it's something that should not be captivating at all, but it might be the most captivating thing I've ever seen. Yeah. It's how he manages to put that on the screen and turn it into what it is is unreal. It's it's indescribable like the nuance too of like the the little side characters the guy i forget his name who's cooking the sauce and he somebody's like how many onions you put in the sauce i I just put three 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 small onions and then the response off off camera is three you don't need three he's just like three onions that's too many onions and then he's asking him how you like the meat and paulie's like well done and then the other guy's medium rare medium rare and he goes oh an aristocrat Bro, it's, they're all amazing lines. There, there's a, maybe, I don't know, it might be a 15-minute or a 20-minute chunk about the the Tanza heist. But Right, where the, where all the guys start showing up, with having the party after the heist or yes. when they're getting into the heist. Oh, my God, the bar scene, the bar scene after the heist. So he, so, yeah. so the, you get the shot of uh, uh, Henry Hill in the shower hearing about the Latanza heist, right? And then they immediately move back in the wall. Yeah, he's so, so excited, so happy. And then he they they immediately move to the bar scene where you got now the Christmas party. Now they're celebrating yes. the whole idea. You get, and Jimmy's told everybody. Jimmy has said to everyone, "Lay low. Don't buy anything. Don't buy anything." 
everyone's showing up with a whole bunch of nonsense. The one guy shows up, he's and not only does he buy this pink Cadillac, he buys the pink Cadillac and he wants to show it off to Jimmy. And he just can't admit he can't admit to Jimmy that it was a bad idea. Yeah, that's Tony Rose beef. <laughs> and he's like, and the way he keeps on going, like he's like you it's 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 the minutia of like the the it's under my it's under how my he name. says it. It's under yeah, my mother in law's name. Yeah. And then he Jimmy's says like, like four times. Yeah, because he's being he's being a smart ass, and Jimmy's like, "Didn't I tell you?" And he's just like, "I'm sorry, it's under my mother's name." He's like, "You being smart with me?" <laughs> he's like, and then the other guy comes in with the fur coat. He's like, he's like unbelievable. One guy buys a Cadillac, the other guy buys a twenty five thousand dollar Ming. He's like, can he's no, like, that, that's who is that's that Anthony is Carbone. Because at least, he, at least he just turned around and walked. I was like, "Come on, we got we got to go, honey." <laughs> Bro, he grabs her and. Pushes her out the door so forcefully. Uh, when they start take, hit, making all the hits on all the guys that were doing all this dumb shit, where it j- basically just turns into Jimmy and, Hen- and Henry just trying to just take all the money. Well, uh, no, it was Jimmy, Jimmy really. that Jimmy wanted to take all the money. Yeah, Henry that seemed to not have much to. I don't know the real story behind that, but he seemed to not have much to do with the um, the Latanza heist. So you well, get no, the stack. He, he set up the whole heist. So yeah, like he, that, he was the connection. Yeah, and. So Jimmy just wanted more money, and but Jimmy was always going to cut Henry in because they've been together forever, yeah. and so they start whacking everybody. The- yeah, well, you get the Stacks murder, which is great because he's like, he, right before he shoots him, he's like, you know, you'd be late, late to your, your own, own funeral. funeral. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then it, and then then Anthony Carbone comes in with the coffee pot. He's like, what are you doing? Take it to go. So he starts walking out with the coffee. It pot. was a fucking joke. He's like, what are you doing? It's a fucking joke. <laughs> And then, uh, you and then get they the replay. No, Hold I'm on, sorry. they replay. They replay that whole scene in slow motion. I don't know why, but they do, and it was amazing. Yes. <laughs> and then you get the you get the Maury murder. So they get they get him in the car and immediately put the ice pick in his in his neck. There's something that happens in that scene that I just love. This is another one of the Pesci lines. Pesci says something ridiculous in that car, and I can't. Oh remember yeah, no. yeah. I'm sorry. Thank you for bringing it up because he's like he's like because Carbone's talking in Italian. So I don't know what he's saying, but I you could deduct what he's saying. And and Tommy's like, what are you doing? You're waiting. <laughs> he's like, what are you waiting for? He's like, he's letting the car warm up. He's like, what are <laughs> yes. you talking about? He, he says something also. He's like, he's like, let's go. Let's chop him up. He goes to get out of the car. He's like, what are you he's doing? Not here. here. <laughs> so then you get to find all the dead bodies. You get Carbone in the meat truck. You get the the gut the couple in the uh the Cadillac. Tony Roastbeef, that was his name. Yeah, Tony Roastbeef. The kids find them. That was that was some way of uh, making that happen. Yeah, this is the, all right. So this is where things start to get a little bit like crazy, right? So then, then Pesci finds out he's going to be a made man. You're all happy for him. Jimmy Conway couldn't be happier than Pesci becoming a main man. And it turns out it's the other family. They got the green light to kill Pesci because he killed. They find out he killed Billy Bats, and yeah. they shot him in the head. So his mother couldn't even do it. Have an open casket. Yeah, and the whole derailment of Henry Hill begins. And so this it kind this, of already started with the deal in the drugs, right? Yeah. Well, so I always thought I had, so I, I need for you to understand that I, I've, I've ruined movies for myself with the amount of times that I I've watched them. Right. Like I yeah, you've said this before, I know, but it's, it's a real thing. I haven't watched Goodfellas in so long. I can't tell you. I can't remember the last time I watched Goodfellas start to finish. Like if it's on, I'll catch a couple scenes and then right. do something else. 
I've, I've seen it so many times that I had enough of it. So, and now I was back for this viewing and it, I, I'm once again enraptured by this movie. But I always thought that this, when the movie takes a turn, I find this movie to be two different movies before uh, Tommy gets whacked and after. It's two completely different things. Oh, to absolutely. Me. I agree. 100%. But I, 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 in my recollection, I always thought that this turn came at like the halfway mark of the movie, when in reality, there's only 30 minutes left of the movie at this point. Right. And so because now it just becomes it's not about the, the great life. Now it's about why this life sucks. Yes. And the real reason why you shouldn't be a gangster, which I don't know. I guess I missed this whole thing when I was a kid, which is why I started my junior mafia. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, I don't there's not much to say here other but than it's also it's not a gangster movie anymore at this point. It's a, no. it's, a, it's like it's like a drug dealer movie. It's like yes. a, it's like a, it's like it felt more like Requiem for a Dream than it did Goodfellas at, from this point forward. Yeah, the whole movie's just a, a cocaine bender at this point. So he he doesn't know what's up or down. They say that he's paranoid and he's fucking up the guns and he's got the drug deal and the helicopter's going and and he's just so he's so deep. It, it's like he's so far gone. He's he's banging the friend now of it's like his wife's friend actually, right? Like it's like one of the no, other guys' no, ex-girlfriends it's, or something. It's no, it's his ex-girlfriend's girlfriend. So <laughs> Oh, that's what it is. His ex-girlfriend's girlfriend. That's right. So She's cutting the coke. They got the they got the uh the babysitter moving keys of coke with a uh, baby. I cannot take that girl. Her voice, her character, she's 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 brutal for me. But um they get pinched because ultimately she needs to get her hat. Yeah, well, the, the phone. She wouldn't. She he tells her not to use the phone, and she hangs up. He's like, "What is she in the narration? What's the, what does she do? She hangs up and makes a phone call from the house." So now, yeah, that. But I was gonna say the the only iconic thing that I could pull from the last thirty minutes of the movie, um, well, two things really. But the main one is that that shot of Henry's face after he takes the huge blast of coke. And his, he's all <laughs> the he's red sweating, nose and he's red, there's coke his, on his face. His, his pupils eye. are the size of his eyeball. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so that that was good. That and then the, the scene when he um he's on the stand and then he start breaks the fourth wall, starts talking oh, to and the he camp. Sta- stands up and starts But I also felt like that was out of place. Like I, I kind of liked it because how else are you going to end the movie? Like what else is there going to be? Like he's, I, I, I agree with you a little bit out of place, but I kind of appreciate it because it was like, all right, now this shit's all over. Like the, yeah. the entire movie that I just gave you is now over. Yeah. I just felt like you went from a perfect movie and then, cause it was a perfect movie up until the whacking of Pesci because yes. it, it, it kind of goes off the rails here in this last 30 minutes. It's not, it's, it's not, not what we had in the first hour exactly. and 25 minutes. You're exactly it, right. It's not it's it's nowhere near the movie that it was. Obviously that was a choice by Scorsese, but I always felt that after after um Tommy gets whacked, I could turn the movie off and I don't miss anything. Right. I agree. Um however, I think it's important to see that final shot of Henry Hill in the suburbs just totally miserable with his life <laughs> do you know what that reminds me of and, and uh, it could because they came out the same year i don't think one could have pulled it from the other but it really reminded me of uh my blue heaven well because of the whole suburbs uh, and, yeah and the, the the relocation and the witness relocation and then not being able to give up the life and yeah yeah 
And then yeah. he, what did Henry Hill do after this? He went and he spent years visiting the Howard Stern show. <laughs> yeah. Um, all right. Well, that was it. The one other thing I wanted to say was um, the music in this movie. Oh. Iconic. Iconic. Point on, on point the entire movie. It, the tone is set. The, it, everything just leads you in the right direction through the entire movie. Yeah. I, um, I, I, re, I mean, really, like, I, I, I find it hard to find a movie that does – because it's not a soundtrack. It's music. Right, they're real. Yeah. They were songs before the movie, interjected into the movie. It, it reminded me of Guardians of the Galaxy, the way that they did that. Yeah, because it's a sa- no. It is a soundtrack. It's not a. Uh, it's not a score. Yes. All right. So, so um, talk about Scorsese for a second. Uh, Taxi Driver, seventy six. Also, he was born in Queens in 42. Taxi Driver in 76. Raging Bull in 80, which gave De Niro an Oscar. He did The King of Comedy, also De Niro. Like he, does, he has a bunch of De Niro movies, other ones that I'm not going to mention. In King of Comedy's 82. The Color of Money in 86. Goodfellas in 90. Cape Fear in 91. Casino in 95. Gangs of New York in 02. The Aviator in 04. The Departed in 06. Shutter Island in 2010. Wolf of Wall Street in 2013. And The Irishman in 2019. You could put on any one of those movies right now. And I'll sit down and watch the entire thing. Any one of them. All right. So if you're following along at home and you want to watch the movies before we talk about them. Next month, we will be reviewing Quigley Down Under, Memphis Bell, and Marked for Death. This was a, a blast. So a blast. Much fun. I, I, I don't think I, I couldn't have enjoyed reviewing a movie as much as I enjoyed reviewing this. And, and we're sorry if, if we were long winded, but come on. It's, it's, might be, it's, a top, it's a top 10 movie of all time. Listen, anybody the, who's listening to this podcast, if you want to call me and or hang out or Skype and watch this movie with me together, feel free. <laughs> Hit me up. I'm down to watch it anytime. His number is 631. No, stop. <laughs> All right, man. It was good. All right. I had a fun time tonight, even though we're not together. Yeah, could have been better, but also could have been worse. Fuck the Rona. Fuck the Rona. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see you next time. Later, guys.